baseball fans. It's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. The Atlanta Braves have given you a championship. Listen to this crowd. Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. Hello again, and welcome to another episode of From the Diamond. As always, I'm Grant McCauley, and it's time for another chat about what's going on with the Atlanta Braves, who have been one of the hottest teams in baseball here in the month of August. They're sitting on the top of the National League East standings, and they're looking to keep it that way as they reach one of the most challenging portions of their schedule here in 2021. We'll be talking all about what's coming up for the Braves, what's been going right for the Braves, and of course, what the Braves will need to go right in order to have the kind of outcomes they want over the next week or so. And Corey McCartney of Talking Chop will join me to do all of that in just a moment. Before we get started, I want to remind you, you can find From the Diamond on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Leave those ratings and reviews. And if you like what you've been hearing and love this Braves discussion, be sure to share it with a friend. You can find me on Twitter at Grant McCauley. You can find the show on Twitter at From the Diamond underscore. I'm also on Instagram at Grant McCauley there as well. And the show is at From the Diamond with no underscore on the end. And you can find every episode of the show, articles, videos, and anything else I've got for you at FromTheDiamond.com. So to help me talk about everything that's been going on with the Atlanta Braves over the past week or so, I want to welcome Corey McCartney back into the show. You can, of course, follow him on Twitter at Corey J. McCartney, and you can find his work over at Talking Chop as well. Corey, it's been not too long since we've gotten a chance to talk about the Red Hot Braves, and even though they kind of suffered a little bit of a setback against the Yankees, I still think the Braves are playing their best baseball at the best time of year. Yeah, I mean, and obviously, you know, as we'll get into, things are going to heat up here, but things are heating up with the schedule in terms of the level of competition, and yeah. I'll say this, I thought the second game against the, the Yankees was one of the best baseball games I've seen in a yeah, long time, and I it, agree. It, just the way that they battled back in that game, I mean, it was it was huge. I mean, obviously, you didn't get the win, and you can dive into all you want the struggles against sure. the American League this season, but that felt like, you know, just the vibe of that game. I just thought it was fantastic. One of the best games I've seen in a long time. Yeah, I would agree with that. I was actually there. I took my dad to the game, so I was down in, I don't want to call it the Lions Den, but there were a lot of Yankees fans. They were well represented there. It was a great baseball crowd, though, overall, I felt like. Of course, for Braves fans, you don't want to hear a very vocal opposing crowd show up but if you were looking for an atmosphere that was part of what made it such a great game that was certainly one that you could circle as I think one of the more interesting at least and exciting baseball games that we've seen this season so as we get started here on this show I do want to talk about what has been going on for the Braves here lately what's been going right for him because it's worth noting Atlanta enjoyed its longest winning streak since 2019 and I had to go back and look this up to make sure but I thought I remembered the Braves never won more than five games in a row in the shortened pandemic season. But it wasn't just a nine-game winning streak that was snapped against New York. Dropping those two games to the Yankees ended a streak of six consecutive series wins for Atlanta. And it wasn't long ago, Corey, when we were talking about the Braves' win-loss, 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 win-loss for what felt like forever. The Braves are 16-5 and this month as they finish up August in the midst of a very challenging stretch. Yankees first, Giants and Dodgers are on deck. And to our point, I guess this will be kind of the test that the Braves need to pass 
to feel like they're getting ready for October, is it not? Yeah, I mean, look, 16 and 5 in August, five games to play. They've got a chance to tie the Atlanta era record for wins of the month. So the 1953 team holds the overall franchise market 23 and 9. The 99 team had 21 wins in August. So they got a chance. You know, obviously things are going to get pretty insane here when you think about not only who they're going up against, but the pitchers are going to be facing in these upcoming series. But um, yeah, man, this I'm really excited about this stretch because let's say they get through the first round of the postseason and you're going to have the central you're going to have to end up facing one of these west teams so you might as well figure out how you stack up against the two best teams in the west and find out in a hurry yeah they're going to and i know that we're going to talk a lot more about this as we wrap up the show a little bit later but this was the other side of the schedule the braves were going through in the month of august where they were winning series that they were supposed to be winning against teams that they should be beating there's no two ways about that it's exactly what the braves needed to do is win the games that are in front of them. But the competition in that bar is going to raise, not even slightly, but pretty much a night and day difference between playing teams like the Nationals, the Marlins, and, of course, the Baltimore Orioles. The Yankees games, I know they were disappointing. The first game clearly didn't go right. The second game, the Braves were right there. They had a chance to win that game. And a loss is a loss, as I said on Twitter after that game. But it was quite a battle, and it made you feel like the Braves could hang with a team like that. And they're going to have to show all of that and then some in what's going to be laying ahead for them as they face the Giants, and then they go out to L.A. to face the Dodgers at Dodger Stadium. Yeah, I mean, and then look at who you're going to have to face on the mound. I mean, so far, you know, the Giants are lined up to throw Kevin Gosman, who, you know, is second in the NL in pitcher war right now at 3-8. You got Logan Webb, who is who's a 2-2 war pitcher. And then obviously the Dodgers, you know, what they've won 18 oh, yeah. of their last 22 since the deadline. You got Scherzer, Walker Bueller. I mean, this is going to be like a gauntlet of sorts. So, you know, obviously they're trying to run down that franchise record for the month and a defining month for them of the year. But I mean, this is going to be proving ground kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and I think after that first game against the Yankees, you could have felt like, who is this team? Did, is this just a team that took advantage of a really easy schedule and, yeah. and worked themselves back up to the top of this division? Or are they for real? And I think even though they lost that second game, and you think about what went around losing that second game, I think they've got to feel pretty good about where they're at right now. I think they should, and I think we have to ask ourselves a few questions about what has given the Braves the ability to be successful in the month of August, and I think one of the things you can point at certainly is the lineup, but it's worth, now that we are three, almost four full weeks really, away from the trade deadline, it's worth asking, how are we feeling about this lineup? Because I have to say that batting Jorge Soler second in the order was not something I'd anticipated working out particularly well because of the kind of hitter he is. He's never been the most patient guy at the plate, but through his first month in Atlanta, that's actually not been a knock on him. He's only batting 250, but his on-base is up close to 385. He's cracked five homers in his 22 games with the Braves. It's solid production, and that'll play. So I don't really have a problem with where he's hitting in the order. Of course, we spent a lot of time, you and I, on this podcast over the last month or so talking about Freddie Freeman, Austin Riley, who we'll get into a little bit more later, the resurgence of Dansby Swanson. All these guys are contributing big time. But that hasn't necessarily been the case for Ozzie Albies because when you and I were talking about figuring out who was going to be the Braves' new leadoff man, I was all about Albies getting that chance to be the guy. But he's on basing under 300 in 21 games as the Braves' leadoff hitter this month. His production is there, five homers, 15 runs knocked in, 15 more runs scored. That's all solid. But maybe he'd simply fit a little bit better somewhere else. But, Corey, I think I worry about over-tinkering when the club has been scoring at a pretty good rate this month at about five and a half runs per game. What do you make of all that, and what kind of solutions do you think Brian Snitker has for this? 
Yeah, I mean, the OPS is at 712 this month, right? I mean, you're yeah. talking about, you know, 21 strikeouts. He's hitting, you know, 12% below league average. Um, you mentioned, obviously, the the productions there. I mean, five home runs. He's driven in 15, uh, stolen three bases. But you sometimes with, with him, I, I feel like maybe he's a little bit too run production oriented as opposed to a guy who just wants to get on base. So yeah. maybe he does fit a little bit better you know, further down. And obviously, you know, the, when you've got a switch hitter like that, you feel like you can get in a, in a pitcher's head early and he's just the physical makeup. I mean, he looks like he should be hitting lead off. Right. Right. Got but I speak. mean, it, it just doesn't always jive. And honestly, I think I'd go back to Jock Peterson. I don't think there's anything wrong with Jock's shown. He can do this. He's done it in multiple places. You just don't really have a lot of options is the problem. Right. I mean, sure. maybe, you know, even when Eddie Rosario's there, I mean, who else do you go to? Right. I mean, can you maybe play with, you know, Heredia up there? Can mm. you do it? There's just not a lot of really strong options outside of Ozzy Albies and Jock Peterson. Were you surprised that Peterson came over? There was a discussion about, hey, this is going to be a guy we're going to give a run in the leadoff spot. And it seemed to kind of come to a close pretty quickly. And now Jock is losing a little bit of playing time to Heredia, who has been good against lefties. I understand the logic and the platoon in a vacuum. But then again, didn't you go out and get Jock Peterson to kind of be a guy that could be part of the solution offensively when you were immediately trying to figure out, hey, what are we going to do without Ronald Acuna Jr. for the rest of the year? A lot of answers were given to that question. It was a multiple-choice question, and Alex Anthopoulos kind of went down to the bottom and hit D, all of the above. We want Jock Peterson. We want Adam Duvall back, and we're going to go get Eddie Rosario. That seemed to be the solution for this, but Jock has lost a little bit of playing time and perhaps a little bit of his luster that he had when he initially came over. Yeah, can I say I really don't understand this? I mean, because sure, yeah, because I don't either. So when he went to the Cubs, he said he went there with the explicit notion that he was going to be an everyday player. He's like, I'm done playing the, you know, these games with the Dodgers where I'm playing in a platoon and I only, you know, I'm not getting to show that I can hit lefties. And we've obviously seen him with the Cubs now with the Braves basically have level splits against righties and lefties. Mm-hmm. He's been a 10 percent above league average hitter in the leadoff spot. You know, his splits, if you want, I mean, since he's been in a Braves uniform, 100 way to run creative plus against lefties, 96 against righties. We've seen him go yeah. deep against lefties. We've seen him get extra base hits against lefties. Let the dude play. I mean, I, I don't know yeah. what more you need to do. And then when you get Eddie Rosario into this mix, you can play all three outfield spots. I don't know why you would need to go deeper than four guys in that outfield. I agree. I just don't understand it. To me, you you go out, go out and get jock because this guy has proven he can be an everyday player just because he was on a team that, showed success using platoons, let him go. I mean, I, he's a he's a fine defensive player, and he can be a spark club at the top of the lineup. Um, I, I just say roll with him. Yeah, I agree with that. And the fact that Jock can also play all three outfield spots is helpful. Now, whether or not he's the best defender at all three of them, I don't think we're going to sit here and debate that. But he's a capable outfielder at any of those three spots, I think is the point. And the Braves do have much better options now than they did when they were forced to play Almonte and forced to play Heredia on a regular basis. Now, those guys may be fine fifth outfielders, pinch runners, defensive replacements if you want to use them for that, but I think we're past that point, and I thought Jock Peterson was going to be pretty much an everyday player, save a day off here or there, and that just hasn't happened as of late. Looking at his overall numbers, this is a guy that has serious power. He cracked 36 home runs for the Dodgers in 2019. I'm willing to look at the pandemic season and say, hey, that's kind of a weird year for everybody. He clearly contributed to the Dodgers winning a World Series last year, and we saw some of that firsthand. But since he's come over to the Braves, he's on basing almost 340. He's hitting close to 260. He's shown some power. 
and I think he's shown the ability to be a contributor. So, yeah, I don't understand, A, why he's getting more time off than I would give him, and, B, why he is dropping down to the eighth spot of the order of all those places. Even with a resurgent Dansby Swanson really making a case to be in the middle of the lineup, I feel like Jock has a role to play there, and also getting Travis Darno back. Don't you want to break up some of those righty hitters when you talk about Riley and Swanson and Darno and Duvall? I feel like Jock has a bigger role to play on this team, and I'm just not really sure why exactly he's in the box that he's in right now. Yeah, and I mean, obviously you're you're working Darno back too, right? Sure. I mean, you don't. I know he's shown he can be a silver slugger, but I, you know, I, I don't know that you need to necessarily force the issue, you know, with where he's hitting in the lineup to the point that you can't push him down to eight and let Jock have that better spot because. I mean, Darno was not hitting well before the injury. Right. And, you know, he's obviously had, he's gone deep a couple of times since he's come back. I mean, he's got a 965 OPS right now, but put him down a little bit. I mean, when you break things up, you got, I don't know. I, I think there could be a little bit of tweaks. It, it's funny though. I mean, we're talking about a team that's, that's rattled off the winds that they've rattled. That's in the position they're in in this division. And we're just, you know, diving into minutiae but i guess it's like <laughs> what else do you have to do when yeah. they a lead built on when they're not even playing for two games yeah and that's i think it's just the thing is that everybody and this includes you know folks that are sitting here doing a podcast like you or i that have been around the team and covered the team for a number of years or the average fan that's just sitting in the stands or on their counter listening on the radio that is wondering hey why is this guy not playing and it's a discussion worth having most certainly and i feel like with jock because he was the first answer to the question of how do we replace Ronald Acuna Jr.? The answer really is you don't. But what can you do to help make up for that loss? You go out and I think you have to throw some numbers at it. And that's exactly what they've done. And we haven't even seen Eddie Rosario yet. And we are going to talk about him a little bit later. But I was curious about that. And I do think that with Ozzy Albies, for whatever reason it is, when it comes to being a run producer, he really seems to be a guy that you look at him and he may not stand out in the crowd if you're lining everybody up like the usual suspects of, hey, who's the RBI leader for the Atlanta Braves? But it is Ozzy Albies. And I know RBI is a stat that we could get into all the reasons why it's not the one to go by. But the bottom line is this guy's knocked in more runs than anybody else on the Braves team. That includes Freddie Freeman, who's been playing every day. It includes Austin Riley, who's been playing every day. It includes everybody. And there's something to be said for that, whether or not he needs to be at the top of the order, trying to be a little bit of a square peg in a round hole, even though it doesn't look that way. I feel like the Braves do need to perhaps revisit this at some point soon if not in the immediate future, just to figure out if there's a way to, A, find someone who might thrive in that role a little bit more, and B, allow Ozzy Albies to kind of get back to what was going so right for him before he moved to the leadoff spot. I mean, I, I, I'm not trying to put a dent in Ozzy Albies, but you sure. were there. I mean, I was watching the, son, the game on the, the second game against the Yankees with my son that night, and Ozzy comes up in the bottom of the ninth, and I told my son, I said, no matter what that first pitch is, he's, he's swinging. swinging at it. Yep. And he gets a slider low in the zone that he shouldn't even swung at. And, you know, it just you knew he was thinking one thing in that situation. And that's, mm-hmm. that's just who Ozzy Albies is. But it doesn't necessarily always play that well to a guy who's hitting out of the leadoff spot. No, it, it doesn't. And, and, look, guys are going to do that. I think baseball has evolved in a way in which we see a lot more of that these days than perhaps you do when you look back in it through the lens of nostalgia or what have you, the game has clearly changed. And Ozzy Albies is a guy that does a lot of things right. So again, this is not to knock on him. I think it's more about just finding a role and a place that might be a little bit more comfortable for him to do the thing he's done all year, which is contribute and be a productive baseball player. I really think that he has done way more of that than carrying on about three or four weeks in the leadoff spot. It hasn't derailed his season, but 
If you're looking at guys that could take a run at the leadoff spot, I think Jock Peterson's clearly toward the top of that list. I think Dansby Swanson might even be a guy that you might even start to look at at this point with what he's been doing as perhaps being a guy that you'd want to give a lot of plate appearances to rather than hitting him down in the middle of the order, fifth or sixth or wherever he might be on a given night, depending on what the lineup looks like. What do you think about Swanson as a potential guy to give at least a little bit of a run to see what he does, or is that something that you don't want to mess with it because it's working? Well, he's done it twice this year, right? But he's only done it 22 games in his entire career. Yeah, not often. Uh, 13 last year. Uh, it, you know, he had an 800, almost 900 OPS last year in that situation. But I think you kind of hit it there, right? You found a situation where he's thriving. A guy who has found that groove over the last 18 months, don't mess with it. You know, just let it go. Just let's try to find a situation where you can work other guys. And look, you already know with Jock, he doesn't have to have consistency in his baseball life to be an effective player. Mm-hmm. Dansby Swanson appears to. So I, I think you don't want to mess with that. Yeah, I, I don't necessarily disagree with that either. Looking at what Dansby's done since the All-Star break, he's been one of, if not the Braves' best hitter up there with Freddie Freeman and Austin Riley, of course, who've uh, both been red hot as well and a big reason why the Braves are where they are in the National League East standings right now. But as I do go through and look at where he's been, the 37 games since the All-Star break, you know, his on-base percentage is only about 370, but it seems like he's gotten better and better and better of late. And that, I think, the on-base percentage being the number one thing I'm going to look at. Uh, if you go back in, he was 0 for 4 in the first game of the month of August. But since then, 425 on base in his last 20 games. Nothing wrong with that, and it's a little bit higher than the 290 on-base percentage for Ozzy since he's moved to the top of the order. And Dansby's done the majority of this, in fact, almost all of this, batting fifth in the order. So maybe he's a guy you just want to see more of, I guess is what I'm saying. But before we talk circles and circles and circles around a Braves offense, it has been more nice than not uh, good enough to help the Braves win a baseball game, and clearly they've been doing just that this month. And really since the All-Star break, they've started to put things together the other thing I have to ask about before we move on from the Yankees series entirely, and that's Mike Soroka. We got to see a little bit more of him this week than perhaps we were planning to because he also joined the Bally Sports booth to help call some of the action against New York. And I know Mike Soroka. You know Mike Soroka. We both talked to him a lot over the past probably five years, but that's not where he wanted to be come August. He was hoping to be back on the mound and helping the Braves down the stretch. Monday was the first time that Soroka had addressed the media after re-tearing his Achilles back in June. And hearing him talk about this major setback, Corey, it really hammered home how difficult this entire period of not just his career, but his life has been. And we're all looking forward to seeing this guy resume a very promising career when he can finally put all of this behind him. Yeah, you know, you hate, though, that he says nobody's ever really seen this happen that far into the rehab process. Like, there's no answer. And I think that's sure. got to be the frustrating thing for Mike Soroka, for the, you know, the Braves front office and for fans. Is that there? You can't look at it and say, okay, well, that surgeon just, you know, and you go back to the same surgeon too, but the fact that you can't find anyone to blame, that there you can't find anything to pinpoint it was just bad luck. And, yeah. you know, that I think that has to be the really, the really yeah. difficult part of this. But, man, he was fantastic in the booth, right? And I, not that we're, I'm, I'm thinking either of us are surprised. You know, he's just such an intelligent pitcher. And he's always been like that, right? I mean, he's always, I, I think it's crazy how this generation of pitchers are just so intellectual about pitching but him in particular i mean he just can tell you so much he just it's fascinating stuff and it, it was cool to hear him in that venue uh, obviously we want to see him back and you hope that he can he can at some point get back to i don't know if he's ever going to be what he was but just being able to be a major league player again 
you know, would be a massive win for Mike Soroka. And you just knowing the guy that he is and having being and you mentioned being around him for so long, you just hope that things finally break his way. But I think he has a fantastic mindset about it, uh, yeah. his approach to it. I, it's, I mean, all that stuff is just uplifting to hear, but you just hope something breaks his way in, in terms of getting it back. Yeah, you'd like to see him have a little bit of good fortune come his way because losing him last year, I mean, and I've talked about this on this podcast before, and I'm sure just about every Braves fan has thought about it. Where would the Braves have been in October if they had a healthy Mike Soroka with them? How much further could they have gone? It was a fun postseason. Obviously, it didn't end the way that you wanted it to, and the Braves were kind of trying to figure out who are we going to start for games against the Dodgers, even with that 3-1 lead. Things just didn't go the way they wanted what if you had Mike Soroka there? And that's a great what if that not even Marvel's going to be able to answer. But as I looked at some of these quotes and listened to some of the things that Mike Soroka said, both in the booth talking about this and, of course, addressing the media, he said that this process is not something that he would wish on anybody. But as you said, the perspective is there with Mike Soroka because he followed that right up with saying, I know I'm going to be stronger from this. I'm looking forward to the day when I can finally look back and draw strength from this entire process. So this is a kid that he's only 24 years old, but – Meeting Mike way back when I did, when he was pitching for Rome at 18 years old, 19 years old, he's always seemed to have a very good head on his shoulders and a very good perspective about the things being thrown at him, not just as a competitor, but also as a person. Yeah, and he's, I mean, you know, I'll throw that in. He's, he's not a guy who, you know, takes things too seriously, too. I mean, I remember, you know, at spring training when we had Chopcast, Zach Dillard and I took him and Colby Allard out and had this United States versus Canada, you know, miniature golf I contest, and they were just buying into it and just having fun and just being silly. And I, I think he's always been a guy who's understood there's a lot more than this, than just baseball. And, you know, he's obviously been through a lot through his personal life. And this is just, you know, uh, another element of that. But um, I mean, honestly, you listen to him in the booth and if he retired tomorrow, I guarantee you he'd find work working in a booth with somebody. Right. Cause I thought he was just yeah. ridiculously good and, and surprisingly good. Uh, considering the fact that he's never done anything like that before. I mean, he was he was really, really strong in the booth. Absolutely. And that's something that, you know, as you and I have you know gone through our careers in the media, both writing and on the radio, doing television, doing all the things that kind of go with that. You know, he was a natural in that regard. So maybe he wants to join a baseball podcast that talks about the Braves each and every <laughs> week. If so, the invitation is open. It's out there. If Mike Soroka wants to jump on the show sometime and join us. But you know, clearly both of you and I wish him the best in his recovery. He did say we're making progress every day. He does have, I think, a good perspective about, look, the last nine months for him was kind of a waste, I guess, was uh, the way that he looked at it and, and had to. But you also have to move on from that. You can't live there and dwell in that place. You have to start focusing on what you can do moving forward and knowing Mike Soroka and hearing what he said and yeah, just seeing the general spirits that he's in right now when he could just be at the lowest of lows. This is a guy I think you can bet on to – really put in the work and get back on that mound. We hope that it's sometime next season, and I look forward to seeing that when it does happen. Going on from that, and I guess one more thing about this Yankees series that folks may not have wanted to see but had to anyway because that's the way these things tend to work. Even though everyone's had a few days to cool off about it as well, if it's possible, the latest replay disappointment was a fairly big one for the Braves. Freddie Freeman called out on a close play at the plate in Tuesday's 5-4 loss to the Yankees. I felt like we had an angle that showed pretty clearly that he was safe on a very close play. And by some very simple math, one run would have gone a long way for the Braves in that game. Uh, we'll never know how it plays out, even if you do get that run. But I know I'm not alone in wishing, hoping, praying that MLB will make some much-needed improvements to its subpar standard for reviewing plays, and in particular, 
for the possibility of maybe overturning some of these plays that I think we have enough video evidence and enough common sense to know went a different way than it was called on the field. Yeah, I mean, I think that to me, the simplest approach and the simplest solution has always just been not having the replay center know what the initial call was. I always feel like that's the easiest thing to do because at the end of the day, these guys, all the umpires and the guys who are out there, they're graded upon their performance. And they're obviously, right. you know, your performance as an umpire on that on the regular season determines whether or not you're going to be part of a postseason crew. And you've got a guy sitting at the replay center who, you know, has whatever personal connections to these umpires. I know he's got a job to do, mm -hmm. but at the same time, I mean, do you want to hurt the potential of someone, you know, be able to work in the postseason because you're constantly overturning their calls or you're right. hurting their, their overall grade? To me, I just think that's the easiest way. Just don't let the replay center know what the initial call was. Allow them to make the call. And mm -hmm. then you're going to get, I think, a more decidedly, you know, free of any bias return on the review i think to me that's just always been the easiest way to approach this two things i think about that number one i i think it's a good place to start most certainly if it were possible for the replay to go through and you never see the umpire and you never know what the call is the thing i want to get to before we go to that and what i would feel my preference would be in that situation is i don't really need to know nor do i think the public needs to know nor do we need to get into a long conversation about hey, well, the umpires are being graded, and if they pass a test and make the honor roll, they get to work in the postseason. I'm really not concerned about that whole deal, and I really wish that that wasn't part of it because that, I do think, to your point, kind of muddies the waters there, makes things a little bit unclear. Oh, well, I don't want to hurt this person on their final grade for such and such. Well, I'm sorry. Like, life doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes you make a mistake, and the best thing to do is what? Say, hey, we made the mistake. Now we're going to fix it. It's okay, and I don't know if there needs to be personal responsibility or culpability or whatever it is that they're trying to do or not do by having a system in place like that where it could bleed over into the replay system, which to go back to your original idea and a lot of people's idea about, hey, they just don't need to know what the call is, I'd say who cares what the call is? If you know what it is, that's fine. If you don't know what it is, that's also fine. But you need to make the call as you think it is because they're sending it to the replay center for basically that second opinion or the final word, if you want to call it that, on what it is. And maybe, just maybe, and this is my other caveat to this, you don't have an umpire involved in that. You get some very specific replay officials who are not part of the Major League Baseball umpires unions who can be fair or impartial in rendering their judgment on what they think the play is because they do understand the rules, they see the angles, and they know what the call needs to be. And it has nothing to do with the Major League Baseball Umpires Association, which I'm sure would be very unhappy to have their work being lorded over by someone other than Major League Baseball umpires. So I don't know if all of that makes sense, but those are kind of my thoughts about this whole thing is I don't care what the call is on the field if you see it. I just want to get the call right when it comes back from the replay center. And I don't really care how that happens or who has to be removed or put into place to make it happen. I mean, as soon as you said that, my first thought was the Umpire Association will never agree of to course. this. Of course. That, I mean, that's, and that's always what it's going to come down to, right? As, as much as we talk about the CBA and what's going to happen this winter with, you know, between the players and the league, that's the, the other element to every conversation involving baseball when you start getting into the rules and, and the umpires is they have their own um, and their own union is going to, you know, to make sure that we're safeguarding their work and allowing these guys to be in the best position to 
not only you know have you know a say in how ultimately a call is is determined but how are these guys getting graded out through the season who's the ultimate determination of what, who gets to work those postseason games, all that kind of stuff. I think it it's all part of the conversation. And as yeah. much as we want to say, you know, man, it's so easy to just not tell them to have a non-attached arbitrator. I mean, mm-hmm. baseball has no problem doing that when it comes to a contract. Right. You go in front of a lawyer who hears the player, who hears the team, and decides how much that player is going to make for the next season. But we won't do that with the umpires, we'll, but we're willing to do that with a player and determine their compensation. So it there's just it just always seems so simple for us right yeah but then we get into that we get into those little minutiae of it where there's an umpire union or there's yeah. a blah 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 it's all that stuff that plays into it. it's just it's never as easy as it seems to fix from the outside no it's it never is but i mean it's i don't want to say it's fun to talk about but it's a worthwhile conversation to have i don't know that we're ever going to find the answer we're certainly not going to solve all of baseball's problems on this podcast i'm really sorry for all the people listening that <laughs> I can't, you know, deliver on that promise, so I'm never going to make that promise. But it is really infuriating to hear things like, oh, well, maybe this call, Alec Bohm call at home plate. Well, I don't feel good about overturning that because such and such umpire might get dinged for that on their final report card. I mean, that just makes me just all kinds of just uncomfortable about what that would mean for the credibility, and I use that term very loosely, of Major League Baseball's replay system, the integrity of that replay system, and I'm putting all jokes aside about bad strike zones and makeup calls and this and that and whatever. I'm just saying there's so much wrong with the way Major League Baseball has implemented and executed its replay system. I'm not one of those throw the whole thing in the garbage all the time every time a call goes wrong. I just want to see somebody make some much-needed improvements because replay clearly has a place in the game, but it's just not meeting the standard that most fans and probably most players, in fact, I'm sure most players would like it to be because it's just not being executed properly. Yeah, I think the worst thing that you hear as a fan or a player, anybody involved in a replay, is that you have inconclusive evidence. Right. Right, that you have inconclusive evidence to decide one way or the other. Well, you don't. You either make the same call as the guy who made the call or you say the guy was wrong. There is no inconclusive. There's either right or wrong. And I think that's got to kind of get thrown out the window. Soccer has been is using 4D technology all over the world. And we can't do that in a Major League Baseball stadium that has TrackMan, that has mm-hmm. all this stuff that can read all the elements that we can read about a home run, about a guy's foot speed, about insane you know spin rates on a ball. But we can't tell you definitively what you know who made it to home plate first. Yeah. I mean, that's that it's just it's inexcusable Uh, to me. It is as well. I mean, soccer has been using an advanced technology or a lot of advanced technology. Tennis has been using some advanced technology I've seen over the years. I've been like, wow, that's really cool. I wonder if that would work on foul balls, you know, things of that nature. And I don't want to get lost in this whole conversation for the rest of time, which clearly we could. And maybe that's what they want. It's just people will get so disgusted and so exhausted of talking about it that they'll throw their hands up and walk away from it. Well, you keep doing this stuff every single night, it seems like, or several times a week, and I think people are just disgusted enough to keep talking about it. But what action is going to be taken, what changes are going to be made, that jury, pardon the pun, is very much still out. But, Corey, here's something a little bit more uplifting. The Austin Riley experience has not slowed down. It shows no signs of slowing down, as a matter of fact. Riley is batting three fifty-six here in the month of August, five doubles, five homers, 15 runs knocked in, 17 more runs scored in his 21 games. Right in line with his work since the All-Star break where he's batting 354, 13 homers, 35 runs knocked in, 29 runs scored in 37 games. 
it's safe to say that his breakout season is what everyone was hoping for. And now I think the Braves just need Riley to keep this up for another couple of months because all of a sudden he's become one of the best players on this team. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly, you know, when you start talking about that MVP conversation, I mean, wherever you deem Fernando Tatis Jr. in this whole thing and, and Freddie Freeman making a run at number two, I mean, you got to feel like Austin Riley is is right there. I mean, it's just been unbelievable. And obviously it just keeps seems it seemingly getting better and better. I mean, a 980 OPS here in August. I mean, he's hit, you know, five more home runs this month. Um, you know, it's 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 been spectacular and it's funny to think about those Chris Bryant conversations from this past winter, you know, about right. that was the guy the Braves needed at third base and figure out you can put Riley in left or ship Riley out. Um, but man, he's, uh, he's living up to it all. And it, it's just been fun to watch, you know, cause as much as you were kind of feel like you're along for the ride with guys like Ozzy Albies and Dansby Swanson and just to watch them bubble up like this and not only figure in and figure it out on the fly. I mean, a year ago, you were talking about him being the weak link offensively in a team that was making a run at a world series. And now he's arguably the second best hitter on this team. It's been a lot of fun to watch and he just keeps just producing in a major breakout year. He really does. If you look at fan graphs and start doing a lot of the sorting through the tables, Austin Riley, he's a two war player in his last 38 games in the second half of baseball. You're starting to see Austin Riley's name up there with Juan Soto, with Bryce Harper and there are a few other outliers that are up here as well. Starling Marte, according to Fangraphs, has also been worth nearly two and a half war in the second half, which the Oakland A's have to be very, very excited about. Also in that top 10, we find Dansby Swanson at number nine as far as a 1-8 war in the second half. So the Braves have gotten some contributions from the left side of that infield, and those were two pretty big question marks when we came into spring training. Think about this with Austin Riley. I mean, you think about how deep the National League is at third base, right? I mean, Justin Turner is the only player that has a fan graph war above Austin Riley now. He's at 3-3. Justin Turner's at 3-4. He's tied with Chris Bryant. He's ahead of Nolan Arenado, ahead of Manny Machado. I mean, that's some some heady, heady company to think about. And he, he leads them all uh, in way to run creative plus at 40% above league average. Um, he leads them all in home runs. I mean, this is – you're not talking necessarily about a, a second baseman who – in you know, no, no disrespect to – guys like Brian Reynolds and, you know, Justin Turner's now, I'm sorry, uh, Trey Turner's now playing some second for the, for the Dodgers. But the fact that you've got this guy producing at this position, that's so deep. I mean, it's, it, it's incredibly impressive that he's doing this and he's doing that at this age um, and doing it, uh, you know, for a team that, again, we, we talked about him potentially having been, been one of the, the weaker links going into last postseason uh, and maybe even this year. Yeah, it's really been a revelation for the Braves this year. There's no two ways about that. I'm just looking still at wins above replacement for fan graphs here in the second half. To see Austin Riley ahead of a list that has some of the names that you mentioned, including Jose Ramirez, who a lot of people would love to have seen the Braves trade for in the offseason, and I really can't knock mm -hmm. that. I thought it was a pretty good idea. If you could get a Jose Ramirez, that's certainly great. I mean, Nolan Arenado is down at number 10 on this war list. This is in the second half. Manny Machado, you look way down the list at number 17. Justin Turner's batting 225 in the second half, so he really hasn't provided a lot offensively for the Dodgers of late. And Austin Riley, meanwhile, has been a big part of the Braves' surge and continues to be a part of that as well. And as I said before, the Braves are going to need Austin Riley to continue contributing like that. They're going to need Dansby Swanson to continue to be a consistent performer. As I said, you know, the left side of the infield was a big question mark for the Braves or some question 
surrounded that because I think a lot of people wondered, A, is Austin Riley going to step up and really claim that everyday job? Can he do that? Is he capable of being consistent enough to do that? To a different extent, I think people were probably wondering that about Swanson. What did 2020 show us about Dansby Swanson? Is he ready to be the consistent everyday player who's going to produce without the peaks and valleys? I don't know if we've gotten the answer to that quite yet, but the peak of late is the best of his career. So you have to feel pretty good about what both these guys are doing. Freddie Freeman finding his way through what was a very challenging first half for him and even losing Ronald Acuna Jr. You've been able to piece it together with the guys you've had and bring over some pieces at the trade deadline that has this Braves offense clicking, I think, enough to be dangerous. And then on the other side, you got to get this rotation you know, figured out in terms of getting it up to full health. And the bullpen has looked better of late. You just have to figure out how to get all of these areas of the team moving in the same direction. And that has really been the real challenge for the Atlanta Braves in 2021. I'm going to throw one more Austin Riley thing at you before we move on. So his current 140 way to run creative plus, if you go all the way back to you know, the Braves' arrival in Atlanta, he has the 10th best weighted run creative plus currently for any third baseman in a single season for the Braves. He is one away right now from Terry Pendleton in 91 and Chipper Jones in 2000. The 91 Pendleton year, of course, was an MVP year. 2000 yep. Chipper was coming off of his MVP year. So that's some pretty good company for Austin Riley, I would say. Yeah, he's 10th. I mean, the 10th best third base season right now for a Braves since they moved to Atlanta. And he's not done. Yeah, it's crazy. He's got another month or so, a little over a month, to add on to that here in the regular season. It's certainly been what the Braves have needed from Austin Riley and from that position in general because, as we've talked about many times, since Chipper Jones retired back in 2012, the Braves have gone through over three, almost going on four dozen, I think, third basemen. The guys that have played at least gotten a start or two over at third base is at least three dozen and approaching well more than that. So to find a guy who could be the answer there for a considerable amount of time is no small feat for the Braves either because replacing somebody like Chipper Jones, again, is much like Ronald Acuna Jr., there is no replacement for this guy, but can we get the next person in line to step up and be a consistent producer there? That I think the Braves would be certainly happy to see from Austin Riley. Yeah, I mean, 24 years old, I mean, it's you feel like a piece for the future, a guy you're obviously going to have on the cheap for a little while, but uh, longer here. Uh, so it, it all, you know, leads back into another reason why you're, if you're Freddie Freeman, why would you go anywhere else? When you've got Acuna and all these under contract like you have them, when you've got, you know, Riley cementing himself in this way at third base, I mean, Dansby playing the way he's playing, it's all tailor-made for Freddie Freeman to wrap up that brace for life deal that we all anticipate is going to be coming here once the season closes so but yeah they it has been a long wild ride to find the next guy at third base Juan Francisco and Chris Johnson and <laughs> on and on and on and Adonis here we are with the guy they drafted and developed yeah. um, it's been fun to watch yeah it is and hopefully it will remain fun to watch for a long time to come so that, of course, is a promising story for the Braves, who have had a lot of promising stories here in the month of August, particularly the results on the field, as they have been one of the better teams in baseball and built a nice lead at the top of the National League East standings. Something else the Braves should be excited about is getting Ian Anderson back in their rotation. It does appear he's ready to rejoin the big league club. With Waskari Noah already back and pitching pretty well in his first couple of times out, Atlanta's rotation, Corey, is getting some reinforcements at a very, very good time. 
you know, I wrote about this at Talking Chop and went up yesterday. It's like, so now what do you do, right? I mean, do you go to a six-man rotation because of the fact that, you know, guys didn't log a ton of innings last year? Um, you know, obviously, you know, you know, uh, and, you know, Ian Anderson, Tuki Tucson hasn't pitched a ton this year, but you're able to shield guys like Max Freed and Drew Smiley and, and, and Charlie Morton and keep them fresh, you know, mm -hmm. going into the last uh, month of the season and into the postseason. Um, do you do that? Do you move Smiley or Tukey to the bullpen and, and subsequently, you know, move them into that long relief role where Josh Tomlin has really, really struggled yeah. over the past month? I'm, I'm excited that Ian Anderson's back, but I'm really interested to see what this does to what is, has become a little bit of an embarrassment of riches for the Braves in the rotation. No, it definitely has. The Braves now have 10 consecutive games coming up without an off day because they had, I thought, an oddly scheduled Two off days this week, which was just strange for anything other than perhaps the All-Star break or a game getting rained out early and you just didn't have to show up for the ballpark or something, which doesn't happen all that often either. But I do think in the next 10 days, you could see the Braves kind of go that six-man route and give them the opportunity to continue to keep guys working and also provide perhaps a little bit of a breather for guys that have been out there like a Charlie Morton just by pushing him back a day if you wanted to do that. And the only way that you can is if all the guys are pitching well enough to deserve to stay in that rotation. We really knocked on Drew Smiley the first couple of months because the results weren't there. It's been better more times than not over the last couple of months, though. So credit where it's due. But he's not a guy you're going to be working routinely into the sixth and seventh innings, quite obviously. Anderson, they may want to be a little bit careful with as he comes back. Same thing with Enoa. Tuki Toussaint has thrown well enough to remain in this rotation. And, of course, I think you like what you're getting from Charlie Morton and Max Freed who are the anchors of this whole thing. So right now, I feel like at least in the next what week and a half, you can go with the six starters. But I don't expect to see that happen all the way through September, especially when they start to get a couple of off days again and can get back into that five-man rotation and just pick your five best going down the stretch. Because as you also pointed out, when it comes to long relief, the Braves haven't had a very good option in that regard. And Josh Tomlin has been really roughed up his last few outings. I'm not sure that you can't look at this critically and say, we just got to go with the best guys we got. And Josh Tomlin has not been one of those guys for a little while now, at least from the way I'm looking at it and from the feedback of most fans as well. Yeah, I mean, he's sitting on, since July 5th, a 12-5-1 ERA. And oh. you look at all relievers in that stretch, and only Dan Winkler at 15-3 uh, has been worse. Um, you know, and I mean, you look at this month, 18-5-6. Drew Smiley, the interesting thing with him, is that he's been in this role before, right? You go back to his Tigers days, even last year with the Giants. He has pitched in relief. Obviously, Tukey has too. But the thing I know, no one mentioned, we talked about this last time I was on with you. The Braves are 12 and 1 in Drew Smiley's last 13 starts. That, I mean, that, that matters, yeah. right? I mean, it, I, I'm not saying that, somewhere. He, that helps him to win. It helps, it helps him, it doesn't necessarily help him win out over a, a debate with Tukey, who has looked really strong. Um, but, you know, it's it's obviously ways in the resume of, of him when you're thinking about how does he fit into the equation. I think it has to, but when I also look at Drew Smiley, look at the body of work this year, he's been a far cry from the pitcher who was doing the things he was doing last year for the San Francisco Giants. His fielding independent pitching is three runs higher than it was last year in San Francisco. And while his ERA is quite obviously up over a full run as well, the strikeouts are down considerably from what he was getting last year. I don't know if a move to the bullpen will help and make him better in short bursts than feeling like, hey, I've got to save something for the fifth and sixth innings if you get there the third time through the lineup, which has really been 
for him, the real weakness in providing as much value as he can for the Braves. He seems to be the most likely candidate to me. I think with Tuki Toussaint, we've seen a lot of putting him in a role where he can get comfortable is going to be important. There's no two ways about that. That's going to be something you have to keep in mind with him. But he has struggled in the rotation before. We've seen him have some bad starts, some real clunkers. We've also seen him have a couple of rough relief appearances as well. I guess you just kind of have to ask yourself, who do you feel like can handle this role the best? And who do you feel like will view this role as a demotion and perhaps end up not having the kind of results or providing the kind of results that you'd want or need to have in that situation? One of the weird things with Drew Smiley is remember when they signed him that Alex Anthopoulos said, okay, one of the things we really liked about him in San Francisco was the curveball. And we saw how effective the curveball was. Right now, he is minus 37 uh, weighted you know, runs above average with his curveball, which is his second worst since 2015. That was one of the reasons that you wanted him, was that he showed this effective curveball yeah. that has been wildly ineffective in this season. But um, yeah, I, I, if I'm making the call, I put him in long relief. And I, you know, because it, when Tukey is on, he's so on. And you can at least in a starting role, if it doesn't work, then you can find someone else. But if you bring him in in long relief, if you're in a situation where you know the starter couldn't go and you need him to log innings for you, you're in big trouble. I, no, I do think you can end up in very big trouble, and that's part of the problem with that. Uh, when you look at what Ian Anderson was able to do for the Braves, clearly he's been a big part of their success uh, throughout his first, what, 24 starts in the big leagues. He was having a pretty solid rookie campaign as well. You get a little bit concerned when you start hearing about anything to do with a pitcher's shoulder and anything that could have him down for a significant period of time. And Ian Anderson has been out now for a fairly significant period of time. He last pitched in the big leagues on July 11th. So we're talking about a month and a half. Now he has been out on his rehab assignment. It has gotten better. His last start in Gwinnett was a pretty good one. What do you expect from Ian Anderson coming back? And is it fair to expect him to jump into a workload in which he would be throwing really more than five innings routinely? One of the things I think about with him, so he is, you know, obviously he's been out since July 11th. He's thrown 110 and two thirds innings this season across the big leagues and minors. He threw 51 last year and is, I mean, he has, he's right. gone over 103 times in six years, right? So I do w worry about you've already had shoulder inflammation and now you're going to talk about building innings, you know, and, and needing stress innings out of him, you know, late in the season, important innings. So I, I do. Anytime you know you start to hear that shoulder inflammation and compensation that maybe sometimes comes with that, um, I think you get worried about it. So I think it's it's going to be intriguing to watch. He was obviously really effective in Gwinnett in his last start. You know, struck out nine guys over five innings. So we know what he's capable of. I just the shoulder thing is always a little bit concerning, and then the fact that the innings for a guy who didn't throw a ton last year, mm -hmm. uh, I think that's an added element to this. Yeah, and not knowing how many innings he was simulated to have thrown over at the alternate sure. training site, we would imagine that it would be fair to double his workload from just the 32 regular season innings and then another, what, 20-plus innings that he threw in the postseason as well for the Braves last year. But his career high is 135 and two-thirds innings he threw in 2019 between AA and AAA, and that really kind of put Ian Anderson firmly on the map as perhaps the Braves' best pitching prospect at that time as well. I don't think there's a problem with him being able to give you five innings most nights. It's the question, I guess, I'm starting to wonder is, where do you cover the other perhaps four innings if you're trying to build him back and bring him back and monitor his pitch count and 
perhaps his innings limit, which could be kind of a gray area, I guess, for them, because you're not going to be shutting this guy down. I guess I'm just trying to figure out what's the best way to go about giving him all of the reps that he needs to have him ready for the biggest innings he's going to throw in October if everything goes the way that you want it to go, which is when you play the most important games of the year. I think it's Drew Smiley, right? I mean, because think about it from this end. Like, you have an investment in Tuki Toussaint beyond the 2021 season. If you heard Drew Smiley's feelings by moving him to the bullpen after he'd started for you all season long, the guy's a free agent. I mean, and he's not going to sure. figure into your postseason rotation anyway. But Tukey could. I mean, if you got into a situation like last year where you end up having A.J. Mentor starting mm-hmm. a game, who would you feel better at with him in that situation? That you can bring Tukey out there and knowing what he could do or, you know, knowing that, you know, with Drew Smiley that it's probably not going to be you know, spectacular, even if it gives you a chance to win a game. And it's all about using the pieces the best way that you can. And the Braves, as I said earlier, when we started talking about the return of Waskari Noah first and now Ian Anderson potentially this weekend, this is a good time to start getting healthy and getting these guys back in there. How exactly they'll deploy them over the next 10 days through a tough stretch of baseball that includes a stop in Colorado, which everyone might say, oh, the Rockies are awful. But you take a pitching staff into Coors Field, strange things can happen. So, you don't want to necessarily expect that to be a cakewalk. If you win that series, great, because you're kind of supposed to. But some things have gone wrong in the past at Coors Field. I think we've all seen it and lived it to know. You just want to get through all of that healthy and with as many wins as you can get after having to have run the gauntlet of playing the Giants at home, the Dodgers at Dodger Stadium, before ending up in Colorado. This is going to be an interesting 10 days, I guess is what I'm saying, for the Braves pitching staff, regardless of who they decide to start or not start when it comes to how they're going to filter the rotation with the addition of Enoa and, of course, Anderson on his way back. Yeah, nobody has more home wins than the Rockies. They're 43-22. and 22. Nobody in baseball has more home wins than them. So it's going to be an interesting you know, situation here to see how that pitching staff handles that. Right now you're set up to have you know, Freed, Smiley, and Anderson and Toussaint get those starts out there. So you're putting your best foot forward uh, from a rotation standpoint in Colorado, but that is a tough place to play. I mean, we've seen Obviously, I don't think we're going to have snow there during that run, but you never right. know. I mean, we're go back to those that, that April start, you know, those years ago uh, with Julio Tehran out there. The weather can be a major factor, but obviously they're fantastic at home. So it's going to be a big test. Yeah, just something to keep an eye on because, again, the Rockies, not one of the best teams in baseball, but they do play well at home, as Corey just pointed out. So you have to go in there with the express intent of playing your best baseball each and every night, including against the teams that you're supposed to beat. Braves did a great job of that over the last 10 days leading into the Yankees series. They're going to be asked to do that again once they get on the other side of playing the Giants and the Dodgers. And they'll see Colorado again, but they'll be at Truist Park in a couple of weeks. So all of that aside and the Braves pitching staff aside for a moment, another potential lift for Atlanta, the arrival of veteran outfielder Eddie Rosario. He's been out on a rehab assignment with Gwinnett and has really been heating up of late. Rosario's knocked in 14 runs over his last seven games for the Stripers and four home runs in that stretch as well. That's what the Braves signed up for when they picked him up. I'd imagine, Corey, he could help the Braves in that outfield mix quite obviously, but also off the bench in key spots where you really need some depth and a power threat to run out there in a big spot of a ball game. I mean, the guy who's done it, he's played all three outfield spots. He's played all three outfield spots in, in Gwinnett too. So this is a guy that it's obviously going to mean depth in that outfield. You know, you think about being able to have another guy in along with Jock Peterson that can play everywhere for you and not only play but also produce at the plate i mean this could be a major boon for the braves to have him uh, in the mix yeah hopefully it'll be just that because the braves while they have had 
more production from their outfield than what they were running out there prior to the trade deadline. This is our first chance to get a look at Eddie Rosario, who was a very useful hitter for the Minnesota Twins throughout his career there. And the Braves, again, will take all the help they can get to try to get outfield production in a season in which they don't have Ronald Acuna Jr. to run out there. As we button up this podcast, I want to circle real quick on our schedule, something we've been looking at for a little while now. We've known it was coming. Let's talk about this stretch that's coming up. I don't know that anybody came into this year expecting the Giants to be this good. Competitive, sure, but they have really been one of the bigger surprises in baseball, at least for me, and Atlanta is going to be matching up with the winningest team in MLB, and it's not the Dodgers. It's the Giants, but the Braves will get the Dodgers immediately after this, so that's the second course of this whole thing. Corey, it's safe to say this is where the Braves are going to find themselves facing their biggest test to date. Yeah, 193 home runs. So as much as I talk about Kevin Gosman having the second-best war of any pitcher, they're hitting the ball out of the park with consistency. They've got Evan Longoria back now. Obviously, you know they pick up Chris Bryant at the trade deadline. Um, this is a team that's you know got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven guys hitting more than 20% above league average. So this is a dangerous deep offense, and they've obviously got some great pitching and more wins than anybody. So this is going to be a major, major test. Yeah, it'll be a big-time test, and the Braves are facing the two best teams from the NL West and the two best teams in baseball as far as records are concerned. Seems like the Yankees were a bit of a warm-up, perhaps, for this, but the Braves do get the Giants at home before they have to go out to Los Angeles to face the Dodgers and then take on the Rockies at Coors Field. So, Corey, I would say that we have some very, very interesting baseball ahead of us. That Dodgers series, I'm just so pumped. Bueller, Scherzer, after the Giants, I mean, this is going to be a lot of fun. It definitely will be, and I look forward to chatting about all of it with you soon. Thanks for all your time once again. Thank you. My thanks again to Corey McCartney for making the time to join me today. Make sure you're following him on Twitter at Corey J. McCartney and following his work over at Talking Chop as well. You can find From the Diamond on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. We appreciate those ratings and reviews. You can also find me on Twitter at Grant McCauley. You can find the show at From the Diamond underscore on Instagram, I'm at Grant McCauley. The show is at From the Diamond there. And if you'd like to find every episode of the show, any videos and articles I've got for you, fromthediamond.com is the place to do that. That'll wrap us up for this episode of the show. As always, I appreciate you making time to make From the Diamond part of your baseball podcast regimen as we embark on a very critical stretch of the Brave schedule. And I look forward to talking about it with you next time on the show. For Corey McCartney, I'm Grant McCauley. This has been From the Diamond, and we'll catch you next time. So long, everyone.